You can subscribe to these shows and get early access through kevinbarrett.substack.com. And you can also get there by way of truthjihad.com. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, finding interesting people to talk to from all around the world, especially people who can cast some light on the uh, darkest shadows, <laughs> the areas where the mainstream narrative completely breaks down. I'm happy to be bringing on my veteran state colleague, Sami Jamil Jadala. He is a uh, Moroccan-American currently back in Morocco. He's an international business consultant and runs a wildlife foundation in Morocco. And we just recently had some communication about the uh, witch hunt against Qatar for not being woke enough <laughs> for the woke brigade and uh, things related to that. Anyway, it's it's good to talk to you, Sammy. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Just minor correction. I'm a Palestinian-American, actually. Oh, I'm not sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> now, you're, now you're Moroccan, too, I guess. Right. And I lived in Morocco many years. I should qualify for citizenship, too. <laughs> you should. Yeah, you should be a triple citizen. Yeah, yeah I love Morocco, too, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wish I could actually have Palestinian and Moroccan citizenship. Those would be at the top of my list, actually, for second yeah, passports. Uh, really, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love Morocco. I, I lived there for a full year and I visited many times. And of course, Palestine is uh, very dear to my heart as well. So, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it's the that's the center of, of the struggle against evil right now in the world, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what what about this this World Cup craziness where the the wokesters, the Western wokesters? are uh, ferociously angry at Qatar, which is a pretty West-friendly Arab country, for, for not being woke enough, not having enough genders, not embracing degeneracy, not having alcohol everywhere for the Westerners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the minor thing, they just overlook over everything. Number one, you know, I mean, uh, Qatar really has invested a lot of money Almost all the money has been invested in the World Cup has been invested in the infrastructure. Okay? Mm -hmm. And not only just in the stadium. So the thing about it that they say, you know, a lot of money has been wasted is not true. Okay? Qatar really began to really rebuild itself in, uh, in the last 12 years. And Qatar has played a very, very active and supportive role of the United States in bringing about, you know, some kind of an agreement with the Taliban. It was the major, the major hub for um, the American evacuation from Afghanistan. It has uh, hosted a number of uh, peace conferences, the last one about Chad, okay, and it has played a very, very major role, really, actually, in support of, uh, of U.S. policy, huh? Peace policy, not a war policy, but a peace policy. And I just don't see why the West is so um, angry, you know, about why? Because of the because of the gender, they want to um, really push the issue of the LBGT on a, a conservative society all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, they bring out about the... Uh, the number of people who died uh, building the, uh, the the stadium. Well, it's true. You know, people died, yes. Perhaps thousands died in building the stadium. But 
So a thousand died in many, many other major projects. And, um, you know, the building the stadium has been a catalyst for um, Qatar to really reform a lot of its uh, labor laws. Huh? Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, so um, I don't know why is it such a, a really well orchestrated campaign against Qatar, even today in the New York Times. There is nothing nothing good to say about Qatar, you know, and and, and it's really uh, kind of mind-boggling and very disappointing to see such a ferocious uh, uh, hate uh, campaign against um, Qatar. Huh? That's true. That, yeah, I mean, I don't understand why, just because, you know, I mean, like the, uh, say, who, who, who was it? Um, someone famous said that, well, you know, if you could not um, uh, enjoy a, a game of football without drinking beer, then you have a problem, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. And we saw, we saw in England and France and other places, you know, these hooligans and the the thugs that got drunk uh, at these games. And, you know, also some countries in Europe, they ban alcohol in the stadium. So I don't know why this campaign uh, to force... Qatar to allow uh, uh, to allow alcohol in a stadium at the same time as that to force this issue of uh, you know uh, LBGT uh, on uh, on such a traditional society in uh, of Qatar or the Muslim world, huh? You know, I, I, wonder, I wonder if it's because these issues, these woke, uh, especially these gender and LGBT type issues, are now becoming sort of the new ideological rationale for what's left of American imperialism. We see this in the fight with Russia, that that, uh, the Russians in general, and of course, Vladimir Putin has spoken about this very eloquently, uh, don't accept this stuff. And neither does much of the world. So the West, and and particularly the, the fully American occupied parts of the West, such as Western Europe, are maybe defining themselves in opposition to the rest of the world by very loudly identifying with these kinds of decadent uh, cultural tendencies. Yeah, I mean, you know, myself, okay, I, you know, I accept it as a fact of life, okay? No one can deny it doesn't exist, okay? It has been in existence since uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? So it's nothing new. And in the United States, only recently, during the time of Clinton, it was the uh, uh, don't don't show, don't tell, okay. And only recently, you know, it became a part of that, that was don't ask, don't tell, but definitely uh-huh. don't show. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I mean, the thing about it, it's a it's a recent thing that um, uh, uh, let's say uh, you know homosexual homosexual act has become uh, accepted. Uh, in the community and uh, the law, but to have such um, to sponsor such a campaign around the world on this issue when there are so many other important issues such as you know poverty, hunger, uh, enslavement, uh, 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 occupation, uh, uh, wars that killed uh, millions of people. Nobody is saying anything about it except. The right for uh, you know to have uh, uh, sodomy sex. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah, it's it's kind of puzzling to me too. And 
Um, it's also, I, I think there's sort of a, a cultural difference from, you know, between the, the Muslim world and the modern or today's West in the way that this issue is, is seen and defined. And I've tried to explain this to Western people that in, uh, in the Islamic culture, and I think to some extent, some Western cultures were more like this in the past. It's, there's no idea of a person being identified as somebody who enjoys sodomy, for example, or somebody who likes this or that type of sexual predilection. That's not the way identity is constructed. That instead, uh, these, rather than a matter of identity, it's viewed as a kind of a sin, uh, a sinful act. And the issue is the actual sexual act. It's not the person or the identity of the person. And pretty much anybody is theoretically, uh, could, could possibly commit that kind of sin, just like with alcohol. Anybody could theoretically drink alcohol, but that's a sin, a particular type of sin. And then the, so, the homosexual acts or sodomy are a, a much a worse kind of sin. And that's it's so it's seen as a type of behavior and a kind of a sinful behavior. But it's very strange to people from Muslim cultures, and I'm sure it would be strange to people from Western cultures a few hundred years ago, to have people actually identifying themselves primarily by the fact that they have a predilection for a certain kind of sin. That's just very mind boggling. Uh, and in fact, science, I think, is closer to the Islamic view than to the Western view. That is, this it's not, the science doesn't tell us that there's a certain type of person that's exclusively uh, created somehow to be homosexual. And rather, human sexuality exists on a spectrum. And indeed, you know, most sexual urges are fleeting and obviously cannot be acted upon. So nobody in their right mind would just identify themselves with some type of sexual urge that it's or some type of, of preference for a particular type of sexuality. That's just bizarre. So it's I think that's it's kind of a an illustration of how the contemporary West has gone somewhat insane uh, in in the post Freudian era. And I think it's a symptom of decadence and a symptom that Western culture has post-Christian Western culture has sort of run its 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 race and is now in its death throes. And that what comes next will probably be something from the rest of the world that used to, formerly was left behind by the very vibrant post-Christian Western culture, which is now dying. And what comes next will probably, maybe it'll be a multipolar world with different cultures. That is, if the transhumanists don't manage to kill us all off. Yeah, but you know, the thing, the thing about it that we just have to accept that certain countries or certain faith or certain religion or certain societies have a different moral uh, standards. And so, you know, we, no one should really push one ideology or on the others. Okay. In the United States, okay. It's legal. It's fine. No problem. We have to accept it. But we have to accept it legally. But we we do not have to accept it morally huh? or religiously. So nobody can force me to accept it in my faith or in my uh, culture. So, But I accept it as a legal uh, issue that has been approved, uh, you know, as a law. But the issue I have here is that 
you know, the contradictions of this moral issue. Um, you know, when North Carolina uh, voted against the, uh, the use of the toilet, okay, you remember a couple of years ago. Right. There was a big issue about the, the use of toilet in high school, huh? And uh, around the country, you know, sport teams, conventions, uh, uh, organizations, they boycotted North Carolina over this issue. And yet they say nothing about, let's say, the two million people in Gaza who have been besieged and imprisoned by Israel for 12 years. They've been killed and bombed and destroyed every day and nobody say anything in fact okay many states they they even pass legislation that any boycott of israel is illegal when in fact a boycott of north carolina was not illegal you can you explain it just can you explain <laughs> yeah. only through mass insanity <laughs> yeah, a, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know the thing about it you know uh, I mean, I, I, no, I, I think I think the the issue with Qatar is um, is envious. You know, I mean, could you imagine? I today I uh, I read an article in the uh, uh, New York Times how how decadent the uh, royal family of uh, Qatar with their billions of dollars, when in fact one man, one man, Elon Musk, he has over three trillion dollars how did he get it you know and nobody say anything about it nobody say anything about one man amazing such money in such a short time in 20 years Elon Musk is worth about 200 or 300 billion dollars and nobody say anything about it well, Alex, yet, Alex Jones is worth a trillion, or at least that's what they, they claim. Yeah, a trillion, yeah, it's a trillion, <laughs> a trillion, I mean, trillion. So, so the thing about it is that why is it that people are envious of the people in the Gulf having money, okay? I mean, you know, it's about time. Nobody, nobody uh, uh, accused the United States of decadence when it has all the money and all the power and all the technology and all the arms and all the aircraft carriers and all the wealth, okay? And, you know, there are so many wealthy people in the United States that, uh, what? I mean, I could say maybe maybe they are uh, uh, worth more than 98% of the world. Mm. Well, I, I think that's a legitimate problem, whether it's in Qatar or the United States, although it's probably a, a much more significant problem in the United States because, you know, Qatar is a small country. So that's it. The influence it has on the world is is modulated by its being relatively small. The United States is a, is a very big and powerful country that's been trying to dominate the world. And the fact that our system here in the United States <clears throat> allows for a corrupt mafia of billionaire oligarchs to basically buy up all the power and buy up all the politicians and write the laws to favor themselves. And incidentally, because uh, a ridiculously high percentage of them happen to be ethnically Jewish and virtually all of those are radical Zionists, they have hijacked U.S. foreign policy and uh, created immense uh, destruction and suffering and, and harmed America's own interests. There are all sorts of problems with the fact that we Americans tolerate this billionaire oligarchy to run our country. And we would be much better off if we followed Bernie Sanders or even further than that. 
and yeah. uh, asked why there should even be any billionaires in the first place and then confiscated their ill-gotten gains. Obviously, all the social media companies, starting with uh, Facebook and including Twitter, should be uh, immediately seized by the U.S. government under a state of national emergency and run under the First Amendment because we're in an, a, a free speech emergency right now as these oligarchs have taken over our modern public square and impose censorship. And even though Musk is doing a little better than some of the other oligarchs, there's no question that the public square should be the public square. It should be publicly owned. It should be part of our public infrastructure, as should so much else, including our energy infrastructure, which shouldn't be run by private oil oligarchs. Our banking infrastructure yeah, yeah, should yeah, be exactly. public banking. I mean, yeah. Right. So so the, our problem is not the rich people in Qatar. Our problem is the rich people in the United States. Exactly. I mean, you know, the thing about it that just look at, uh, let's say, a company like GE. Uh, uh, it made about uh, $20 billion and paid zero money in taxes. That's unconscionable. And the same thing with the oil industry, okay? They're not paying any taxes. And yet the poor man who works, uh, you know, 15 hours a day, he has to pay taxes. And I, I agree with you. I think that, let's say, uh, uh, organization, uh, public uh, media like uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, LinkedIn, they are really controlling the, uh, the, uh, the public square, huh? okay, the free speech. I, I, was, I was censored um, by uh, LinkedIn uh, because I referred to the, uh, to the Israeli settlers as terrorists, you know? <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, my yeah. goodness. <laughs> I, I was censored by them when, in fact, you know, uh, Israeli, uh, other Jewish uh, writers, they refer to them as terrorists. But yet, when I say that, okay, I was censored by LinkedIn. And of course, you know, I canceled my uh, subscription to LinkedIn. And I, uh, I also um, canceled my subscription to Twitter and with Facebook a long time ago. Because I think what we needed, as you said, is that these this organization should be the public square of free speech for our citizens. No censorship. Because any time that you mention Israel or you mention Zionism or stuff like that, okay, then you are censored. You know, we need, we need a Hyde Park corner in every town and every city. Okay? Uh, to I give agree. Uh, a that... chance, to yeah. give the people a chance to stand up and speak out. Yeah, that's part of the good side of the American tradition that's been progressively lost. Do you think there's a racist element to the way that the New York Times and other uh, people with a megaphone here in the United States are sort of not only allowed, but encouraged to deplore the wealth of the rulers of Qatar? They don't like Arabs having money. And yet, if you talk about Jews having money, uh, like people like Kanye West uh, has, and Kyrie Irving uh, and Dave Chappelle even, uh, that, you know, it's, it's just a simple fact that according to studies that I've seen, uh, the average Jewish American has about double the average annual income of the average non-Jewish American. And according to other studies I've seen, among the very wealthiest Americans, that is the, the billionaire class, uh, something close to half of those people are ethnically Jewish. Now, if you even mention this, you're likely to be censored and you'll be run out of town and you'll never work in this town again. Uh, 
Uh, however, you're encouraged to yap about the uh, the rich Arabs and how sad it is that the, there are all these rich Arabs running around, and and uh, the, you know, the amount of wealth controlled by the rich Arabs is is nothing really compared to that uh, controlled by Western Jews. But you can't even mention the the Jewish wealth. Uh, there's got to be some kind of racist double standard going on here. Well, there's no question about. I mean. No question in my mind, it's all about racism huh? and envy. It's all about racism and envy. Why is it that, you know, I mean, with um, with uh, Qatar has its state fund, I think, uh, about $400 uh, uh, billion dollars in, uh, in uh, state fund, and uh, everybody is envious of it when, you know, one man, one man uh, must, he has trillions and nobody say anything about it. Why is it? Why is it? I just don't. I, I just don't get it. We don't. We talk about the Arabs having money. Okay. Well, maybe it's time for them to have some money. Nothing wrong. They have lived in the desert for a long time with, with even no water. Huh? So mm. why are we so envious about it? You know. And, and they don't have that much money. Yes, there there are some very wealthy not, Arabs, but there are also much. a lot of poor Arabs and middle class Arabs too. It's not like the Arab society course, is so rich. Not all Arab society is rich, but you know, for Qatar, okay, the the uh, the uh, the people of Qatar, the native or the people who have Qatari nationality, I mean, they have so many things free for them. Huh? We wish that we have at least at least a good health insurance for ourselves. You know, when I got sick with my cancer, it cost me $220,000. Really? That's a, that was in the state. United States? Yeah, in the United States. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess the U.S. is the last uh, wealthy country without a national health service. And Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good thing that I, I, um, I have been paying... Uh, a private insurance for a long time, okay, and of course, you know, Social Security is helping a lot. But imagine, imagine that one person like me, okay, with a course of treatment of about seven months, had to pay two hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and I still get one shot every six months, cost eight thousand dollars. That's adding insult to injury. Well, I'm sorry you've had to go through that, Sammy. That yeah. sounds horrible. So, so the thing about it that you know. New York Times, the Guardians, and all those people and pundits who are talking about, uh, you know, uh, Qatar or attacking Qatar, they should really uh, look inward, huh? Look at England, the poverty in England, the poverty in the United States. What about the farm workers' right, okay, in California and in Florida? Everybody forgot that there was a big, big fight, okay, with Chavez, okay, leading the fight to get some rights for these people, for these migrant workers. Nobody talk about it, you know? They only talk about the number of people who who died uh, in uh, in Qatar. And it's very unfortunate, it's very unfortunate, and uh, there is no excuse for it, okay? But the same time is that we have to look at other uh, 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 cases, you know, in colonialism in, uh, in Africa, what the French did in uh, in Morocco and what they did in France, killing really millions of people, okay? And uh, the Belgium, in Belgium, Congo, 10 million people uh, killed, okay? In India, you know, the British 
they just shot a number of people. Uh, I don't know how many, maybe a couple thousands uh, in the back. And nobody talk about it. Just simply nobody talk about it. In Vietnam, three million people died. Nobody talk about it. In Afghanistan and Iraq, one million people died. Nobody talk about it. Yeah, there's a double standard there in with the uh, Holocaust and genocides. I've had Gideon Paglia on the show many times. He's an Australian scientist who's a specialist in comparative Holocaust and genocides. He's from a, a Jewish background himself. And he's talked about how the, the Bengal famine, so-called, during World War II, was really a deliberate British extermination of some, what's it, 10 million, a huge number of people. The, uh, the so-called Irish potato famine was also a British-engineered deliberate genocide of Ireland. And these kinds, uh, this, these are just a couple. You mentioned a whole long list as well. And in all of those areas, uh, there, there are the free speech rules in the United States seemingly allow people to say positive things about the British Empire and to refer to the uh, potato genocide as just a famine, uh, to talk about British policy in World War II and ignore the Bengal Holocaust and so on. In other words, you can basically say anything you want and deny. You can even deny these Holocausts and genocides or minimize them. You know, the Turkish people are always kind of minimizing what happened to the Armenians. And the Armenians, yes, of yeah, course, that's are... true, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And, and the Armenians are maximizing it. And so there's a, a, you know, free speech seems to apply to every Holocaust and genocide throughout all of human history, except one. And that's the incomparable magic six million Holocaust, which actually probably is the most, the received version of that is probably the most exaggerated of all of the received versions of any of the Holocaust and genocides around. But you're not, that's probably the reason you're not allowed to talk about it. Because if you have a free discussion of it, suddenly not only will it become not so incomparable, and we'll see that there were all of these other Holocaust and genocides that were actually but, much worse, but we'll learn that most of know, what we... Uh, you <laughs> know, ahead. Kevin, I tell you, I mean, we just have to admit that what happened in Germany, you know, whether it's six million or not, it is just unconscionable, huh? Okay? And we, yes, we must not forget that. We must not really forget that. But at the same time, let's not make excuses for others. Mm, that's okay? true. Yeah, you, well, yeah, it, it was unconscionable, but... No? but but the other, the, the war crimes committed by other sides during World War II were at least equally unconscionable. That is, if, if, if we accept the revisionist view of the Holocaust, according to which the actual number of victims was much lower than six million, that the mass gas chambers were a fiction, that there were no mass gas chambers, and that there was no deliberate extermination policy, that instead the plan was to get Jews out of the Reich, and indeed there were all kinds of massacres, deaths, some of them the fault of the Germans, some, the majority probably because there was no more food or fuel left during the uh, last uh, year of the war. Uh, well, if, you know, uh, you know, if, if we take that, if if yeah. that, if the revisionists are right about that, and I don't know if they're right or not, but I've read enough to know that there's a pretty good case that they very well might be. Then comparing that to the fire bombings of Dresden and Tokyo uh, and other cities, and the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and uh, the what the Japanese did in not in China in the POW camps and so on and so forth, the Germans end up looking like, yeah, they're war criminals and the racism against Jews was terrible. The racism against gypsies and their general... That's true. That's true. We have to admit, we have to admit there was racism and the Holocaust was 
an ob obnoxious crime against humanity. There is no question whether, you know, whether it's two million or five million, whatever. Okay, mm -hmm. when you target certain people for death, then there's a problem, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. to me. So for me, uh, the Holocaust is a is a subject that I uh, uh, I keep in mind because of the fact that as a result of the Holocaust, the state of Israel was founded. Okay, and as of the result of the Holocaust, you know, the Palestinians were exiled. Okay. But let's not forget what happened in two towns like Hamburg, Dresden, you know, Tokyo, okay? What happened to the Japanese invasion of Southeast Asia and the hundreds of thousands of people killed, okay? The number of people who got killed in World War I by the civilized European, okay? You know, using uh, mustard gas and napalms, okay? So... I have a problem. I have a problem with all this, you know, contradiction of Western morality. Huh? I really have a problem. And nobody, like I said, nobody say anything about uh, about these crimes. They just forget it. So, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it seems like the, the, the other side's crimes uh, have been mythologized. And so it seems to me that many of the worst abuses of U.S. and Israeli policy since World War II have been driven by this myth that we were the good guys and the Germans were absolute evil. And so now, basically, we have uh, a carte blanche to do whatever we want. And I think the Israelis have had that attitude. The Americans have, to some extent, had that attitude, too. And it's really led to a degradation of the morality of the way that, you know, they, of course, what Israel, this slow motion genocide that Israel is perpetrating in Palestine, and of course, the American imperial uh, Holocaust, which, according to Noam Chomsky and, uh, and Andrei Volchek, who wrote this book on Western terrorism, they total up about 60 million uh, deaths of civilians for the most part as a result of these U.S. military and CIA interventions since World War II. So if the U.S. has massacred 60 million since World War II, that's 10 times the uh, <laughs> official number of the, the Jewish Holocaust in World War II. Yes, I'm not uh, yeah, and, and, we've, and we've done that because we are intoxicated with the view that we are the good guys. And why do we have that view? Well, in part because of this public myth about World War II, which is actually just not true. The Germans were not the entire, the, the villains in World War II. World War II was a lot more complex than that. So I, I think that one of the reasons we're prohibited from talking about World War II and the Holocaust is that if we had a free discussion of it, we would quickly learn that we weren't the good guys. And suddenly this, this mytholo mythological rationale for American imperialism and Zionism would disappear. And that, that's why there are these hate speech laws across Europe. That's, that's why anybody who talks about the Holocaust in World War II gets fired, their career gets ruined. It's because the facts don't support the myth, and they can't allow us to discuss the facts. Well, I think myself, you know, I think that anti-Semitism is driven uh, by Western Europe, okay? I think that Western Europe is perhaps the most anti-Semitic of all organization. You know, from, the, from the 15th century, England barred the Jews from England, okay? And throughout Western Europe, the Jews have been chased out. And, 
you know, uh, only the Muslim world welcomed them, huh? Okay. So, but the, you know, again, you know, the, the issue of, we have to look well, at well, what happened. Sammy, let, let me stop you there. Well, why do you think it is that the Muslim world actually has, has had a lot less conflict between the dominant societies and the Jewish communities um, than, than the Western world and many other parts of the world have? Because I tell you, I mean, the Muslims, as a Muslim, we are not anti-Semitic. I think that anti-Semitism is a Western culture. It's a Western value driven by the West, okay, of their hate for the Jews, okay? And the Arab world is not driven by, by anti-Semitism like the, uh, in Europe, okay? I mean, the history of Western Europe is shameful when it comes to the treatment of the Jews. Look at the Jews in Spain, in, in Muslim Spain, in uh, the Ottoman Empire, huh? and in Morocco, and in many countries where where the the Jews have lived in dignity and respect, okay, and there has never been any movement of anti-Semitism. There is a movement only after the establishment of Israel of anti-Zionism, but never really anti-Semitic, as in Europe. Well, this the, is my view. the Zionists actually had to go and persecute Jews in Morocco and Iraq, among other places, in order to try to get them to go to Israel. That's what, that's a little known fact. That it's kind of surprising when you first encounter it, that it turns out that, that the Zionists who wanted the Jews of the world to come uh, to invade Palestine, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, right, right, they actually yeah. had false flag terrorism against Jews in Iraq and Morocco. And indeed, there was, do you, do you know the story of a, the ship that apparently the Zionists sunk full of uh, Moroccan uh, Jews uh, who who were heading for Israel, they actually sunk a ship and killed a few hundred people in order to create an international incident to essentially force the king of Morocco to allow the Zionists to use a force and and persuasion and money and so on to essentially terrorize Jews of Morocco. Yeah, but leaving. I tell you, I mean, the thing about it that Morocco is an excellent model of uh, existence, huh? between Jews, Muslim, and Christians. It's really a country that has such a, a diverse culture, okay? And, you know, um, um, it's made every effort to make sure that the, the Jewish community is well taken, well taken care of by renovating synagogues and by, you know, uh, the, uh, the king just established a commission uh, for uh, uh, Jewish community, and I think Morocco is a great model, okay, for a uh, coexistence between Jews, Arabs, and Muslim, and Amazir. So I really wish that everybody would take a look at the model of Morocco, okay, and see how can people, uh, Muslim, Arabs, and Christians, and Amazir, and other ethnic group can really coexist in such a country. It's really, really, really something to be very proud of. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit more about your work in Morocco. You you have a, a wildlife uh, preserve or you're, you're managing it. Um, can you tell yeah, us a little more about yeah, that? Yeah, we, um, you know, I was the first one to establish a, um, a wildlife preserve to, to breed a, an endangered species which is native to Morocco and North Africa. It's called the Hobara Bustard. And I established this center in Agadir, uh, Morocco in 19, 
92, and it was sponsored by the the, uh, late uh, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Prince Sultan. And we established two centers, one in Agadir and one in Rashidiya. And uh, uh, then the the, uh, Arab Emirates, they came in and they established a very big center in uh, Mysore, in Morocco, with about um, 800, and um, they're producing thousands of hubara, which is an endangered species. And so here we are in the south of Morocco. I've been here five years, and um, we have established a a hubara breeding center, and we are doing very well, producing thousands and releasing thousands into the wilds. So uh, it's a great thing, you know. I mean, um, um, it's a lot of hard work and uh, takes some investment We in technology, in genetics, and a whole lot of things. Huh? So, um, yes, we are doing a great thing in keeping uh, and uh, uh, keeping an endangered species from extinction. So we are sending thousands of hobara into the wild. Oh, so that thanks, wonderful. Yeah, thanks to people like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the Arab Emirates uh, who are really investing a lot of money in uh, ensuring that this endangered species is not uh, extinct. Interesting. Well, that, that's kind of the other side of the story. As you said, there is this prejudice against you know the Arab money. Uh, and in fact, there is actual philanthropy coming out of the Arab world that is often sort of denigrated or ignored. And, uh, so we, we should, we shouldn't do that. And it's, uh, I, I know the, the, it, you know, Morocco is in an interesting position, uh, kind of geopolitically. And as a Palestinian in Morocco, I, I mean, I, I know that in, in Morocco, there's, uh, generally you're allowed to speak freely about just about everything except uh, the things they're very sensitive about at one point were like the, the Green March and that issue of the Polisario, uh, which I actually tend to, uh, I find Morocco's point of view on that to be pretty pretty convincing. So uh, I've never had well, a problem with know, that. Yeah. I tell you, I, live, I lived in Morocco for many years, and for me, I mean, the Sahara is a, a Moroccan territory, and no matter what uh, Algeria or the other countries say, Okay, Mm -hmm. it is part of Morocco historically, naturally. And, um, you know, I mean, as as someone who has lived in Morocco and I love Morocco. okay, I am 100 percent for the uh, uh, for what the king uh, has uh, proposed and for the government. Morocco has proposed that autonomy within sovereignty of Morocco Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Morocco has invested a lot of money, a lot of money in in the uh, in the Sahara, in the Moroccan Sahara, uh, in towns, infrastructure. Perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested since the Green March, which was a great a great thing to me, at least to me. You know, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no, I actually I agree. I'm biased. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm biased, but I am biased. Okay, I don't uh, deny it. I'm biased for. Uh, for Morocco and what it has done uh, uh, in the Sahara and its own country. Huh? It has done a great thing in terms of infrastructure, in terms of roads, uh, hospitals. You go to town like Layoun and Dakhla and uh, Disneyt and other towns in 
and the Moroccan Sahara, and you will see the difference. You will see the difference. So the Polisario, they're just really, you know, renegaded, you know, um, self-serving organization, frankly speaking. I mean, this is my opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually agree with you on that. You know, when I f first did my Fulbright work in Morocco back in 1999 and 2000, I remember that there was kind of a bias among, you know, the, the kind of left-leaning, right-thinking kinds of uh, academicians who went to Morocco sort of bought into this narrative of the poor oppressed Polisario and the Sahrawi and so on. And when I looked into it, I wasn't really convinced for some of the reasons that you mentioned. And also the fact that this, uh, this was part of Morocco for centuries that, that yes, exactly. You know, Historically, yeah. it you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, it, Morocco has extended all the way to Senegal. The sovereignty of the kings and the sultan of Morocco have extended all the way to Senegal. Right, and so this 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 idea <laughs> this of break, a historical fact. Right, right, and 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 the other thing I, I noticed was that all this rush to sort of try to break up countries into smaller units and make them weaker uh, and impoverished uh, is actually not in the interests of the people of uh, of these formerly Western colonized regions. And so, course, you know, right, right. Of course. It's, it's, it's sort of, sort of like the, uh, the Yanon plan, uh, for, for the middle, so-called Middle East, or, you know, we might call it West Asia. Uh, the Yanon plan in, is, you know, from this Israeli thinker, uh, who wanted to break up the countries in the neighborhood of Israel into smaller units so they would be, uh, more amenable to manipulation, exploitation by Israel, and they wouldn't pose any security threat. And we see that kind of thing all over, where where the West likes to have these smaller countries broken up into small pieces, not cooperating with each other, so they can be played off against each other, and their resources can be exploited more easily. And it seems Absolutely. to me, yeah. So, so that's one of the reasons I think that you had this this kind of fake concern with the Sahrawis among the Western liberal left. Yeah, they were playing the colonialist hypocrisy. game. I tell yeah. you, it's nothing but hypocrisy. It's really nothing but hypocrisy. You know, they should come to Morocco and see what Morocco is all about. They should see what the government of Morocco has done in the Sahara. Contrary to what Algeria, okay, has done for the Polisario in the area controlled by the Polisario. It's refugee camps. Come to the south of Morocco and you will see cities, towns, hospitals, roads, schools, universities. All the good life, you know. The people have never had it better than when Morocco really reclaimed back its territory with the Green March. And it's ironic that Morocco has been able to do that without the kind of oil money and gas money that Algeria has. Algeria has a lot more resources, and yet, as you say, they yeah. haven't, haven't invested nearly because, as much. You know, I tell you, in Algeria, the military is looting the country. $100 billion disappeared during the time of Bouteflika. And could you imagine a country, a country of 40 million people electing a president who was comatose? He did not even make one single statement. They only had his pictures. He, he was almost as bad as Biden. Of course. Just you kidding. know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine? To me, it's just mind-boggling that a country, a country, or, you know, of course, it's the military, huh? Okay, that can elect someone who's a comatose. He could not Well, that's a, we, we elected a bunch of comatose people in the latest American elections. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they put this... 
pictures and, and writings. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Algeria definitely has its problems. It's kind of too bad because it, the <laughs> Algerian revolution against France was was a pretty heroic struggle. Indeed, of some of course. my in-laws actually nobody helped did, them. Nobody denied it. Nobody yeah. denied it. It yeah. was heroic, but unfortunately, it was it was hijacked by the military. Huh? Okay, right, right. Yeah. which be quickly so, became deeply corrupt. Yeah, I really, I really, you know, as someone who loves Morocco, and I am uh, treated very well here, and um, you know, the uh, the largest demonstration ever in support of Palestinians was in Morocco. By the way, huh? Right, but see that that's one of the one of my issues with you know I've been thinking about actually moving to Morocco. And I, you know, I'm annoyed. one of the reasons I want to move to Morocco is that the United States has become so decadent and depraved and owned by these uh, nefarious forces and so on. And the free speech isn't what it used to be. Uh, so I'm thinking of going to Morocco. And yet uh, something that quickly, you know, the, the biggest uh, negative there that arose in the past several years was when Morocco bought into these so-called Abraham Accords. And Yeah, but, you know, I mean, okay, Morocco has its own reason, okay? But it does not change the fact that Morocco is very supportive of the Palestinian cause, okay? It has its own issues, okay, and uh, its own needs. I mean, for me, I, this is a subject that, you know, uh, I'm not really, uh, how should I say, competent to speak about it. Definitely, I think the conflict with Algeria has a role in it, but at the same time is that it does not affect of how Morocco is committed to the Arab and the Palestinian cause, you know? I so, mean, so, if I, so, so Sammy, if, if I move to Morocco and I, I do this radio show and the rest of my uh, work uh, from Morocco, uh, will I be uh, have any problem if I choose to very harshly criticize the Abraham Accords and to call for Morocco to back out of them. Well, you know, I tell you, I mean, this is, I think that this is a sensitive subject and I would stay away from it. I think that I would have to, to look at uh, Morocco, what it was, has done, okay, uh, uh, for its people, you know, the development, the investment in, in towns and cities and education and and hospitals and roads and uh, housing, uh, the investment it made in uh, in, uh, in its Sahara. So there are a lot of lot of positive issues to talk about in Morocco. So think about that. You should concentrate on that. If, and, if I go know. to Morocco, I should try try to focus on the positive in Morocco. You're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think that you should. Yeah, yeah, really, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's enough to criticize in a lot of other parts of the world that I suppose I could get away with that. And it's true that the Moroccan people are very pro-Palestinian. You know, I'd feel much very, more comfortable there. Very, very, yeah. I tell you. I, you know, I can say that uh, the love I have uh, from the people of Morocco, and like I said, I've been here for many years, and I'm very, very proud to... To uh, to be in Morocco, and I consider Morocco my second home, frankly speaking, because I have seen nothing but good things from the from the people, huh? And the way I have been treated, both as a Palestinian and as an American, huh? Okay. Yes, that's really, I tell you, you could not imagine how great the country is. For God's sake, the diversity, you know, just the diversity. You know, you can see the 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 different. Um, uh, 
uh, color of people, huh? From the very white, you know, to the very black, okay? And in the same house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. that's true. That's you, yeah, you, in, mean, in my in-laws. My, 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 right. My, my wife has uh, siblings who range from being fairly, you know, from brown to blonde and blue-eyed. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is it's only in Morocco. I mean, as I as I go, you know, to a coffee shop or to a restaurant, and I see families and the different colors. Where can anywhere in the world? In the United States, or in France, or in Germany, can we say that? You know, such a great racial integration of communities. Mm-hmm. And the the, la- the languages are kind of cool too. There's a lot. Yeah, people. Yeah, everybody's language, at least you know, bilingual. Okay, the Amazigh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know the uh, you know the uh, uh, everybody forget that the Amazigh they constitute about maybe forty percent of the population. Okay. And many, they speak, uh, you know, Amazighi. And uh, uh, I was in Agadir uh, about a week ago, and um, I attended a concert of, uh, of 420 choralists from France and Morocco. Huh? And they sang French and Amazighi music. It was wonderful, you know? It was wonderful just to see this kind of a, diversity and richness of culture and tradition. You know, uh, Kevin, you could not imagine how beautiful it is when the people on the day of the Eid, huh? and all of them, they dressed in the traditional Moroccan costume. Huh? Yes, I, I've, I've done and that. they go to the yeah. prayer. Yes. It yeah. is fantastic. It's beautiful. Yes, you know, I, I, I kind of miss that. The uh, yeah, Eid in Morocco is uh, is wonderful. It's a beautiful yeah. thing, you know. The the Eid in Morocco, the the cultural things. Okay, is that the tradition, even the the architect, you know, of all of all the Arab countries, Morocco and perhaps Tunisia and to some extent Algeria, have kept a a um, uh, an architectural tradition of Morocco. Huh? That's right. The, the, the tiles, the, the arabesque yeah. tiles are, are beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Not like, you know, like, in, unfortunately, in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and all the others, you know, it's all Western villas, you know, California style, um, Hollywood style. In Morocco is different, huh? That's right. And, and there's a living Islamic tradition in Morocco that uh, appeals to me, it too. They're, they're, yeah, uh, it's you know, really, you know, yeah. there's such a, a spiritual things on a Friday, a Friday you know, Friday uh, prayer, okay, on the Eid prayer in Ramadan, and Ramadan, such a beautiful, beautiful sense of uh, tranquility you feel in the streets, you know, that's true, uh, and the shops, and the and uh, uh, the and uh, the mosque, huh? That's right. Okay. I, I, one of one of my memories of Morocco is mosque hopping. Uh, because in, in the United States, some people talk about bar hopping, where they drink alcohol in one bar and they go to another bar and they stay out late. Well, on the night of power in uh, Ramadan in Morocco, which is, I guess they observed it on the 27th night of Ramadan, if I recall correctly, people go from mosque to mosque and stay up all night praying yes, in yes, all of the mosques yes, in the city yeah. or as many as you yes, can possibly yeah, get yeah. to. And it's they they you know, say that there's blessing or this kind of uh, uh, mystical energy of baraka that you you can kind of partake of the baraka of each of these different mosques. And so staying up all night, going from mosque to mosque and praying in all these different mosques, praying, you know, tarawee prayers 
and and so on is is a, a was really an amazing experience. There are a lot of things like that. Yeah. So if, uh, you know, yeah, maybe yeah, you'll talk me into moving back there. <laughs> yeah, Islam Islam in Morocco is such a beautiful thing. You know, for me, it's the kind of Islam I like. It's a tolerant. It's open. It's encompassing. You know, of people, they accept diversity and everything else. Huh? Okay. You know, it's not like the Islam that we saw in in Saudi Arabia in the uh, late 70s and 80s, huh? okay? Mm-hmm. That created the Mujahideen and all the others, huh? That's okay? true. Yeah, Islam really... in Morocco yeah. is a, it's a spiritual. It's a spiritual. You can see it, you know, in the sense of this, in the sense of sense of decency of the people, huh? Okay. Yeah, there's and, and there's an intellectual sponsorship. The government sponsorship. Of such a tolerant faith, you know, okay, the king as the 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 Amir of Mu'minin, you know, the prince of the believer, he is also plays a key role in the defining of what kind of Islam uh, we have in Morocco, and thanks to him, this kind of a, a tolerant Islam exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was there doing my dissertation work, as I recall. Uh, uh, there was a, a well-known scholar named uh, Ahmed Taufiq who specializes in Moroccan history and particularly in the history of Moroccan uh, Sufism and the uh, you know, other religious schools of thought. And he ended up being made uh, the minister of Al-Qaf, as I recall. And so yeah. the, the religious establishment in Morocco does seem uh, erudite and that the school of thought that they embrace does appeal to me more than uh, than some of the other ones. So yeah, it's it's a it's a very uh, beautiful kind of Islam, and there's a traditional culture that's still alive in Morocco. And I guess that's part of you know bringing it back to where we started. The attacks on Qatar seem to be attacks uh, against any having any kind of boundaries related to one's traditional culture. And maybe the West is jealous because it's lost its heritage, its traditional culture, and so it's attacking the Islamic traditional culture. And maybe, uh, maybe we need to be a little more genuinely tolerant. And <laughs> but, you know, uh, Kevin, the West would just only love to see a one-eyed Arab terrorist. That's what they want to see. Mm-hmm. Really, this is what they want to see. They like to see Arab terrorists. They don't like to see Arabs having fun, you know, enjoying life, uh, streets, uh, subways, hospitals, clinics, uh, schools, universities, research, you know, um, 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 uh, science and everything else. They just don't like that. They just want to see the ugly Arab. Unfortunately, I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And that's, you know, it's, it's partly a, it's Edward Said wrote about how these kinds of stereotypes evolved historically in, in Orientalism. It's all about Orientalism. It's yeah. all about Orientalism. That's all, huh? Yeah. You know? Yeah. There is such a, there is such a, a historical uh, uh, intolerance and uh, uh, hate, you know, for the, uh, for the uh, Arab and Muslim East. And, and even these okay. countries like uh, Qatar and to some extent Morocco that have kind of taken a balanced policy on many of these issues and tried to tried to play the role of interlocutor and to try to solve some of these problems. And, you know, Qatar has actually you know done that. They've 
they've tried to work positively on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They've tried to work positively in the conflict between the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, and its enemies in the region. And they've they've generally tried to play a positive role. And this is the way they get paid back. (laughs) Very, you know, I mean, just, just look what happened, okay, during the evacuation of thousands of people from Afghanistan. Where they came from? They came to Qatar, okay? You know, and Qatar made it made its country and uh, it available to help all these people, huh? To repatriate them to different countries. So Qatar, even though it's a small country, but I think that it's a it plays a very good role model, okay, of what an Arab country should be like. It's a small in population, but I think it's a grand in its vision for a world peace. This is the way I see Qatar, you know? Okay, well, that's the counter view uh, to this uh, stuff we're hearing in the mainstream media. And I think uh, <laughs> what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Sami Jamil Jadbala. I appreciate your uh, wise words. <laughs> Somebody speaking, uh, speaking some, some truth to this media nonsense that we're inundated with all the time. Uh, so thank you again. And I look forward to all seeing right. you maybe, uh, inshallah, I'll, I'll see you in Morocco sometime. Inshallah, inshallah. Welcome back to Morocco, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> inshallah. <laughs> Thanks. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, oh, oh.